Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Dr. Elisa Granato, a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Zoology, University of Oxford. She received her PhD at Life Sciences Zurich Graduate School, University of Zurich, her Master of Science in Microbiology and Immunology at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology Zurich, and her Bachelor of Science in Biology at Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. She was awarded a FEMS Early Career Microbiologist Award for her contributions to the field of microbiology. We talked today about how bacteria work together to get food, and in particular iron, but also about her study on how bacteria evolve to fight each other. Spoilers, it's like putting bacteria in a little arena and seeing what happens. We delve into her more recent research in the field of horizontal gene transfer, a field she didn't have much background in, and into why it was important for her to try something that was new and different. Elisa Granato, welcome to Tidbits of Research. You study bacterial interactions and how they evolved. What kinds of bacterial interactions have we seen so far? Ooh, so that's a big question because that's basically the entirety of my field, but I love it. So for some context, for a while, people really thought bacteria were just these kind of little machines that just kind of did their own thing on their own. But we've realized over the last few decades that that's actually not true at all. There's a ton of interactions happening. Sometimes they help each other. Sometimes they fight each other. But all of it is very social. So... One thing about bacteria is that they're really never alone. It's really, really rare that you would go anywhere and there's a single bacterial cell. They're usually always surrounded by other bacteria, whether that's kind of copies of themselves or completely different species that they're just, you know, competing for food with or something like that. (laughs) But they're pretty much never alone. That kind of dominates, you know, their evolution and ecology. Like, okay, they always have to figure out who's around me, you know, what should I do with them? Should I kill them? Should I help them? Is that me? Am I being surrounded by myself? (laughs) Just a a weird aspect of bacterial biology, I guess. They can make copies of themselves. But anyway, in terms of what kinds of interactions, I guess we can split them up into two main families of interactions. So the ones that where you're as a bacterial cell, you're helping the cells around you and once where you're trying to kill um, the cells around you or prevent them from growing, for example, or something like that. So roughly, we call them antagonistic interactions when they're trying to harm each other or mutualistic or cooperative interactions when they're trying to help each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the kind of the two families. So are you trying to help each other or are you trying to you know, fight the other guys, basically? And I've worked on both of these. In my, in my career. So in my PhD project, I was mostly focused on the nicer side of things. How do bacteria help each other? What kind of things can they accomplish better when they help each other? Um, when do they have to kind of be in a team, you know, to accomplish something? And that was cool because there's, again, many different flavors of these kinds of helpful interactions. The one that I mostly worked on was how do bacteria work together to get food? even more specifically how to get iron (laughs) it's kind of a weird one as a human because we're not you know we don't necessarily think of iron as a food but for bacteria it's actually super super important because there's very little iron out there in the world or very little that's easy to get but it's super essential for their metabolism basically for yeah how they live and survive so anyway uh, iron is hard to get and bacteria work together to get iron 
And that's what I worked on during my PhD. How do they do that? When do they do that? How does that evolve over time? These kinds of questions. So that was my PhD and that was the, the kind of nice, nice side of things like, oh, that sounds cool. They interact with the other and they help each other. But then I also wanted to see the other side of the coin. So after my PhD, I completely went away from studying cooperation and I wanted to look at how bacteria fight each other because I had heard <laughs> that that also happens all of the time, and that's actually very true. So bacteria have evolved a number of different ways to kill bacter other bacteria around them, because uh, sometimes life's a struggle, <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> you know, there's limited, limited food, limited space, so there's a strong evolutionary pressure, so to speak, to um, evolve things that help you be an aggressive competitor, you know? Doesn't sound very romantic, but that's that's how it is sometimes. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not always, you know, nature's not always nice. And uh, sometimes the best strategy is to just be a good killer, you know? Kill everything around you, take all the food and space for yourself, and that's gonna, you know, make you really successful in some environments, right? That's not always the case. So it really depends on what type of bacteria are we looking at? Where are they living? This kind of stuff. So sometimes it's good for them to be more helpful and sometimes it's good for them to be more fighty, basically. In the last few years, I've really switched focus and moved over to studying so-called competitive behaviors. So whether that's growing as fast as possible to get all the food before someone else can do that or whether that's killing um, other bacteria. And again, we can split it up. There's different types of killing, you know, and I've worked on several different um, kind of mechanisms in the killing space, so to speak. And yeah, that's kind of where my current work lives. So I look at, we call them weapon systems. So there's literally mechanisms in bacterial cells that they use to kill other bacteria. And I study how these so-called weapons work exactly. When are they employed? I do a lot of microscopy. So I literally put bacteria in a little arena <laughs> and then watch them fight each other. And then I see who wins and who dies and how does that happen and this kind of stuff. That was a very long answer. It's perfect. <laughs> it's just I have so many questions now. I don't know which where to okay. start. So I guess one of my first ones, you were describing something like, here I am a little bacteria and I need to like look around me. Yeah. How do you, yeah. like, I don't know, if you're looking at an animal, you can see it kind of like mm -hmm. assess. How do you mm -hmm. study that for something that's so tiny? That's a really great question. So we have to first look at what kind of components, um, in terms of molecular components, does a bacterial cell have at its disposal to sense its environment, right? So that's the first question. How do you figure out who's around me, what is around me? Because bacteria are blind in the sense that they, they don't perceive the world as we do, right? They don't necessarily, you know, see colors and light and like, oh, there's an animal approaching whatever and react. For them, it's mostly about chemistry. Mm -hmm. Most of what they're sensing is molecules. And then again, there's different types of molecules that they can sense. They can also sense things that are not molecules. For example, something like temperature can give a bacterial cell actually a ton of information. A lot of things are regulated by temperature, especially specifically for those bacteria that like to live in animals. Mm. So if you study a bacteria and realize that at 37 degrees, they seem to switch on a lot of things. And 37 degrees also happens to be the body temperature of a lot of mammals that can tell you something about their preferred lifestyle, maybe, mm -hmm. right? Or like maybe whatever they're switching on right now is especially useful when they live in the gut of some animal, for example. So that's something that's not a molecule, but it's something that they sense and respond to, that's temperature. And in the same vein, they can also react to the presence of certain chemicals or molecules like, ooh, I'm sensing molecule X. And now I'm, I mean, they don't know really, but they've evolved to respond to that molecule in a way that, that makes them more likely to survive in this environment where there's 
this specific type of molecule. Mm -hmm. There's also straight up just signaling to each other. So I mentioned earlier that they have to be able to tell who is surrounding them in terms of, is that me or those copies of myself? (laughs) Or is that a competitor? Or is that maybe a bacteria that's not me, but that I want to help because we have this cooperative relationship? So then there's something basically called a bacterial language that comes into play. So they secrete... What? I know, right? It's weird. They secrete certain signals into the environment. So literally they pee out molecules, right? So that just say hey, this is me. (laughs) It's really simple. And then it's almost like a little ID. It's really specific to certain types of bacteria and then they secrete it and then they can sense it also. And now imagine a scenario where there's, like you start with one little cell and it keeps dividing. So now imagine there's just like thousands copies of the same original cell and they're all secreting this molecule that says, hey, it's me. They're also all now seeing a lot of this molecule, right? So there's a super high concentration of this molecule that says it's me. And that tells them like, okay, I'm surrounded by copies of myself. Cool. That checks out. (laughs) And then they might switch on some things that are super beneficial than when they exist in an environment where where they're allowed to like divide to such an extent where they exist in large numbers. So a lot of things only make sense for bacteria when they're not alone. So they have a lot of switches that get flipped when they can sense that there's a lot of them. That's a process called quorum sensing. And quorum basically just means that there's a certain threshold of, okay, now we're enough. And they do that mostly through sensing these chemicals that I mentioned. So, I mean, they're not really talking to each other because these chemicals, I mean, as far as we know, are mostly sensed in terms of, okay, is it there or not? And then is it there at a certain concentration or not? So it's not as complex as, let's say, the human language. But I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll figure out, you know, in 20 years that it's actually way more complicated than we think. But that's my level of understanding how that, of how that works. And then, oh, they can also sense if they're being attacked, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something I'm really focused on now. Because again, there's a lot of fighting happening in these microbial communities. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's really a struggle because there's a lot of competition. They often live in environments where there's not enough food and space for everyone. So it's really about who gets at it first you know, and who can remove their competitors mm-hmm. most efficiently. Of course, part of that, part of living in an environment where there's a lot of fighting is defending yourself. There's this really complicated process happening during evolution where they get exposed to certain types of attacks. For example, a lot of bacteria will target each other's DNA because one thing that every single cell in the world <laughs> has in common is DNA. So that's a really good target. If you can target that, because then, then you basically have a guarantee that it's going to work, right? For a lot of, in quotes, em- enemies. It's amazing that that got developed for them then. I know, right? It's crazy. I mean, they had a lot of time. That's the thing, right? <laughs> and I mean, especially as a bacterial cell, because they divide pretty quickly. So in generations, a few months for us is maybe not a lot of time in evolutionary terms, but that's hundreds of generations for bacteria. Wow. Yeah, I know. They, they divide crazy fast, which is also why we love them. We love to work with them as evolutionary biologists in the lab because they divide like crazy. So you can simulate the equivalent of 10,000 years of human evolution would be, you know, you can do in a couple of days, basically, in the lab with bacteria. So anyway, evolution takes a long time. So there's a lot of crazy things that have evolved, especially in the bacterial world. A lot of bacteria kill each other with toxins, which are basically, yeah, as the name suggests, just molecules that have some sort of toxic activity in terms of they harm other cells. And a lot of these toxins target DNA because DNA is present in most bacterial cells. It's a, it's a popular target, let's say. Bacteria are also very good at sensing DNA damage. And we think that's because they're exposed to so many things that can target their DNA. I mentioned these genetic switches earlier. So there's a lot of things in the bacterial cell that get switched on when they sense DNA damage. We think in some context that can mean that 
they sense that something is attacking them. That's so cool. And then they upregulate things that will help them survive. We call them so-called stress responses. Mm -hmm. And there's different types of stress. Some of them can be unrelated to a competitor. For example, ooh, the pH is too low or whatever. You know, That's dangerous and you have to defend yourself against that. But that's not necessarily linked to someone attacking you necessarily, right? Whereas something like DNA damage can often mean that, okay, so there's literally a toxin that's like trying to digest your DNA, better get ready to repair it, you know, or to mount a counterattack or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a few ways of <laughs> interacting yeah. um, and sensing. Sometimes it seems that there's kind of like, what's best for me as a bacteria and what's best for me as like a bacteria living in like this community. There seems to be some game mm -hmm. theory here. <laughs> yeah, oh, um, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> how do you study this trade-off if there is a trade-off like do you see any cells that are doing something maybe that are not the best for them individually but end up helping the community as a whole yeah for sure one thing that makes bacteria kind of different from other animals is that when they live in a group cells that are in that group are mostly genetically identical and that's in contrast to other animals, where if you have a, a herd of animals, for example, let's say zebra, <laughs> they might be of the same species, but they're not genetically identical. They're not clones of each other. Sure. Right? When we look at a bacterial cell and the bacterial cell does something that's bad for itself, but good for the group, if that group is a group of clones, it's also in a way helping itself. Because mm -hmm. all of these other cells have exactly the same genes. So if you think about a group of genes, let's say the chromosome, which is how the DNA is arranged in bacteria, trying to help itself, sometimes that can mean sacrificing this copy of itself, but helping the group, which is still an, uh, just a mass of identical copies, though, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so here it, it becomes, so it becomes uh, and it's super weird, but also it becomes easier to explain really extreme behaviors. For example, things like altruism is a pretty extreme social behavior in humans, for example. I do something that's that doesn't benefit me at all. It's purely for the benefit of someone else, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be non-trivial or like hard to explain um, in animals. And there's a bunch of theory and a lot of, you know, really cool science happening in that space. But in bacteria, it's kind of, it has a different flavor almost because their genetics are so extreme. Right. Because a lot of the time we talk about groups of bacteria, but it's not the same as if we talked about a group of human beings, because in bacteria, often they're clones of themselves. So sometimes the better comparison is actually to look at the cells in our own body. Because mm. if you think about your own body, it's mostly, it's, I mean, every single cell has the same genetic makeup, right? Let's, let's ignore mutations and this kind of stuff. Let's simplify it a little bit. <laughs> so you're this big multicellular organism and uh, there's some conflict happening sometimes in things like cancer and these kind of extreme phenomena. But most of the time, the cells in your body pretty much cooperate towards one evolutionary goal, right? Reproduction. But if you talk about a group of bacterial cells, it's almost better to think of them. It's not necessarily a multicellular organism, but they're more evolutionary aligned than let's say a group of zebra. Does that make sense? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. they're so genetically close to each other. Mm -hmm. So anything that would harm an individual bacterial cell but help the cells around it can be relatively easily um, explained by just genes helping copies of themselves. Because that's all genes want to do. Genes just want to reproduce. I mean, I say want. <laughs> the genes that, that evolve over time and that are stable are the genes that are good at, that just happen to be good at. Um, Seem to optimize towards this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Appear to optimize towards reproduction. And that can mean that an individual copy of a gene can even encode for a behavior that sometimes kills copies of it. But that's totally a, a totally fine trade-off if that, in quotes, suicidal behavior 
helps other copies of itself, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you can get weird phenomena in bacteria and in other animals as well, but in bacteria, it's often relatively straightforward to explain it through this clonality, we call it, through this lifestyle that's driven by bacteria living in huge groups, thousands or millions of cells, you know, sometimes in one spot, but they're all copies of each other. Mm -hmm. and then you can get extreme things. So that's actually one of my, in one of my recent papers, I showed that there's a so-called counterattack response, where when you have a group of bacteria and they sense that their DNA is being attacked, what I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. They get really stressed because their DNA is being damaged. Like, oh my God, no. If, and if the DNA is damaged too much, you're basically dead, right? That's the core thing you want to protect as a cell. Right. So they go, go through great lengths to protect their DNA. That's kind of like their, literally their recipes for survival, right? So they have to protect it. And if the DNA is being attacked, they mount this thing called a stress response. Or it's actually called an SOS response because it's so, it's such a, literally, that's the, that's the technical term for it. And it's so funny. Like, okay, emergency, wee. I always imagine like this little alarm going off, like, oh my God, no, the, DNA, the cell has been breached and the DNA is being damaged, literally. And so they mount this and if they, and if they have a certain set of genes, not all of them have it, um, they will mount a counterattack where they start making their own toxins. Like, okay, you attack me, I attack you back then. <laughs> That's two can, because two can play at this game. Right. And uh, even more weirdly, so that's already cool enough. Like, oh, they sense that they're being attacked and they uh, produce all these crazy toxins. But these toxins are not just made and then secreted. So bacteria secrete up a bunch of stuff all the time. They have these things called transporters in their membrane. So a lot of the time they make a molecule and then it moves through a transporter and then it, it's basically in the environment now. Okay, it's gone. You've secreted mm -hmm. it. But that's not how these toxins work because they actually spend some time making these toxins and they accumulate inside the cell. So for, let's say, an hour, they'll just kind of make toxins but not secrete them, like, oh, I'm just building up, you know, <laughs> a little thing here. And then they'll actually flip a genetic switch and then kill themselves. And then the membrane gets all leaky and then all the toxins, basically, they turn themselves into a little bomb. <laughs> and then all the toxins what? like leak into the environment at the same time, which is crazy effective because they can they can generate a lot of toxin and then it's localized in one spot. And a lot of toxins are really concentration dependent. So it's really, we think that that's really a good strategy to just kind of build up toxins for a while and then bam, release them all at the same time instead of kind of leaking them out, you know, <laughs> over time. Yeah, that's a crazy response. And at first people were like, wait, what? <laughs> you're being attacked and then you're killing yourself. Like that doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense. Wow. But that ties into what I said earlier because not all of them do it in a group of clonal cells that are all being attacked. I mean, the ones that see the attack the most will do a lot of it. But if you look at the whole group, maybe like a small section of the, mm. we call it a colony, when there's a large group of bacterial cells, we call it a colony. Um, if the colony is being attacked, let's say from the left side, you know, like a section on the left side of the colony will all kind of turn themselves into these little counterattack machines, you know, and kill themselves and release all these toxins and then try to like, you know, get rid of that competitor that's attacking them. And that seems super costly, like, wait, they've sacrificed thousands of cells now, right? But there's two things that make this explainable in evolutionary terms. One is that the, what, the cells that are really, really stressed by this attack and that mount this crazy counterattack response, we figured out that they're actually also super likely to die from the attack anyway. Mm. So those are kind of the cells that are at the front lines. They just happen to be, you know, wrong spot, wrong time, <laughs> where in that, you know, in that corner of the colony where there's an attack happening. And so their DNA is probably so damaged at this point that there's no chance of them surviving anyway. So mm -hmm. again, as a clonal group, might as well, you know, turn them into little 
counterattack machines into little bombs and try to like get rid of that competitor. We call that reducing the costs of a behavior. Because right. if you're thinking about future reproductive potential of these cells, that's zero if they're bound to die anyway from this attack. So this toxin, these toxin genes have evolved to sense DNA damage so precisely that they can kind of tell, okay, if I'm only a little damaged, I'm not going to do that crazy thing because maybe I'll survive, right, and make more copies of myself in the future, so I shouldn't do that. But if I'm damaged beyond repair, then I'm going to kind of commit to this strategy of just turning all, all the proteins in me basically into toxins, you know, wow. wait for a little and then explode. Again, because the whole group has these genes, the benefits of that counterattack can still go to the survivors, right, to the to the cells that have the same copies of that crazy suicidal gene, but they haven't actually committed to that behavior. It's just some of them. So it's just one of the examples of like really extreme things that happen in the bacterial world. It seems so crazy. And like, if you saw an animal do that, that'd be kind of insane. <laughs> and that'd be really hard to explain from an evolutionary point of view. But these, these extreme behaviors are actually super rare in the animal world. And they're super common in the bacterial world. And a lot of it, we think, is because of the lifestyle of bacteria, basically, mm -hmm. which is driven by, okay, there's millions of us and we're all the same. <laughs> so we can do kind of crazy things. I mean, you can see that a little bit, actually, in insects. So social insects are the, the animals that are closest to, to microbes, actually, in, in some respects. Because if you think about something like an, uh, an ant colony or social wasps and this kind of stuff, termites, they live in huge groups and a lot of their reproduction is tied to, you know, helping the queen or some kind of, you know, central reproductive uh, organism. So all of their evolutionary interests are relatively aligned. Mm -hmm. Again, there's, there's always some conflicts, right? So I'm glossing over, over some of the details here. But there you also see similar kind of sacrificial behaviors. Think of the honeybee that's defending a honeybee colony. For a lot of honeybees, I think when they defend their nest from, let's say, a bear, and they sting the bear to turn the bear away, the stinger sometimes gets stuck in the skin. Yeah. And the honeybee dies. So it's a similar type of thing, right? You're defending, you're defending your group, in quotes, but it's a, it's a suicide mission, essentially, right. right? But it's still super effective. It's still super effective. But that only works if, <laughs> if you're in a big group and then the benefits of that suicidal behavior still go to uh, animals that you're super closely related with, right. which is the case for things like insect societies and this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. So again, most of the extreme behaviors we see in animals are also in big social groups. That's not, that's not a coincidence, we think. So there's some interesting parallels, right? Even though there's, no, there's very little sort of evolutionary relationships between insects and, let's say, bacteria, but they happen to evolve a similar kind of hyper-social lifestyle, and that leads to similar kind of extreme behaviors, which I found interesting. And we also briefly discussed that in the paper. I mean, it's not... It's not like a core argument or anything, but it's just an interesting observation. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're currently at the University of Oxford in the Department mm -hmm. of Zoology. You um, were awarded a, I don't know what this stands for, but a BBSRC Discovery Fellowship. <laughs> I was yeah. trying to look for it. A long I like, acronym. <laughs> I don't know what it stands for. But you're a fellow, which is awesome. <laughs> um, it basically just means I applied for some grant money and I got the money. Perfect. <laughs> And awesome. then the, the, the acronym is just the funding agency. So yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> it seems that you're going to study horizontal gene transfer. Correct. Tell us a little bit more about what that means and what kinds of questions you're interested in answering here. Right. Okay. So everything we've talked about so far is about bacteria having a certain set of genes that, that makes them do certain things, you know, whether that's helping or fighting or whatever. But actually, because bacteria are so cool, it's more complicated than that. Because <laughs> what bacteria can do is exchange genes with each other. 
Mm-hmm. And that doesn't even necessarily have to involve Wild. sex or anything like that. I know, right? So in animals, I mean, animals also kind of mix their genes with each other, but it's usually through sexual reproduction, right? Like there's several different, maybe two, two or more, you know, organisms coming together. And then there's some sort of, you know, gene mixing going on. And then the next generation will have a new set of genes, right? That's derived from the parents. And maybe there's a little bit of mix up and maybe some mutations, this kind of stuff. But that's how, that's how you get kind of new genetic material. But in bacteria, they can do that without making a new generation. So you can literally just picture two bacterial cells sitting next to each other. There's no division happening. No one's reproducing. It's just two cells hanging out, basically. Mm -hmm. And then they have to have a certain type of machinery, basically a little antenna protruding from one of the cells, and it kind of touches the other cells, and then their membranes fuse. It's really weird and alien-y. And then DNA just kind of crosses that little tunnel thing, and then it goes from one cell (laughs) to the other. Like, hey, you have a gene that you didn't have five minutes ago. Congrats. And then the oh and then the cell is like what? Okay, that's actually super important. A super important process for things like antimicrobial resistance. Maybe you you've heard of that before. So that means that the drugs that we treat bacterial infections with are becoming less and less effective because bacteria evolve resistances towards a lot of these drugs. And these drugs are actually, some of them are exactly the same, some are really similar to so-called antimicrobial molecules that bacteria would find in nature. So a lot of these antibiotics that we use are actually molecules that bacteria use to fight and kill each other. So it ties back to what I said earlier. We just have extracted those molecules from nature and use them in the clinic now. But at this, I mean, at, the, at its core, it's an evolved molecule that's targeting bacteria. And so in nature, there's a lot of these called resistance genes floating around. So genes that make you resistant against these antimicrobial molecules. A lot of these genes, unfortunately, are horizontally transferable. And that means that right. not only have not only do we have to deal with bacteria that happen to have evolved resistance, and then they kind of like all of their progeny will be resistant, but it, it's made worse by these genes also horizontally transferring between bacteria. Mm-hmm. And so evolutionarily speaking, the spread of antimicrobial resistance is sped up because you don't even have to wait for them to grow and divide and let's say spread in a patient, you know, and then spread to the next patient or whatever in a hospital. But it's even worse because then they can give it to other species too. So this is com- sometimes completely unrelated to, oh, is this a copy of myself? If it's a copy of yourself, then you don't have to give them genes. But if it's a closely related cell or if it's a cell from a completely different species, it doesn't like, it kind of, it kind of jumps over all these barriers mm-hmm. and just means that individual genes are moving through communities and populations. It's kind of creepy. And if there's strong selection for these genes, for example, because a patient is being treated with an antibiotic and there's this kind of mobile resistance genes floating around, <laughs> then you have a big problem because that gene can spread pretty damn fast. Yeah. Um, so that's what we call horizontal gene transfer. It doesn't only apply to antibiotic resistance genes, but that's a commonly used example because it's so important for a big problem that we're currently facing as a society, this big problem of antimicrobial resistance. And so I want to look at how horizontal gene transfer affects bacteria, how bacteria fight each other. Because that's where I'm coming from right now. That's my current research, how bacteria fight each other, how do they defend themselves from attacks, how do they react to attacks and this kind of stuff. Interestingly, so I was working with this specific type of toxin system, so the suicidal toxin system that I mentioned earlier, where if they want to release that toxin, they have to, we call it permeabilizing, so they have to make their membrane really leaky and then kill themselves in the process to release these toxins. So this kind of crazy toxin (laughs) is actually encoded on a piece of DNA that can be transferred horizontally. And funnily enough, people have kind of ignored that, even though we've studied this toxin system, I mean, we as as a field for many decades now, 
people have kind of preferred to work with a version that's not horizontally transferable, probably because it's easier to do experiments <laughs> with bacteria when the genes are not moving around, because <laughs> it's hard enough to do biology with bacteria sometimes, and you don't also want your genes you know, to move around you know, uncontrolled, basically. But in doing that, we've also kind of neglected this, what I think is a pretty big piece of their biology is that these genes can move around. So mm -hmm. imagine a scenario where you have two groups of bacteria meeting and one of them makes this toxin and the other one doesn't. Normally, you would just expect like, okay, if they meet and if the one guy is producing enough toxins, it'll just kill the other guy if the other guy is sensitive. Let's keep it simple. So it's a pretty simple interaction. I mean, it depends a little bit on how you set it up and this kind of stuff. But um, normally the toxin producer will kill the target. But now imagine a scenario where the genes to make that toxin can move from one group into the other. Now it gets weird because <laughs> now they are basically sharing their weapon with their competitor, yeah. right? Which is super odd. <laughs> like, first of all, why would you do that? Yes. <laughs> and then also something that I didn't mention, but the gene that, that uh, encodes for the toxin, there's a gene right next to it that encodes for immunity because you don't want to toxify yourself. So a lot of these toxins come with kind of like a insurance policy like okay you're not going to kill yourself so we're going to give you immunity to your own stuff <laughs> just to make sure that you know nothing's right. crazy happening which makes sense like that's often the case if i make something i'm also immune to it because you don't want to make it and then kill yourself with it right what can happen is that the gene that is responsible for making that toxin and the gene that's right next to it that's responsible for making you immune to that toxin they usually they occur in the same piece of dna so they usually move together but then it gets weird because then this whole package like making the toxin and being immune to that toxin can move into the competitor and now the competitor first of all is starting to make the same toxin <laughs> so now you've turned your competitor into a toxin producer and also that competitor is now uh, immune to that same toxin so essentially the weapon that was super useful a few minutes ago is now rendered completely completely useless um, why do it i don't understand. which is weird i know right and that's so basically where i'm coming from with this project is that we know that mobility potential so that the option to move that thing into a competitor is present in 95% of these toxins that we find in nature, of this specific type of toxins, not all toxins, but this specific family of toxins that I'm interested in. So that's way more than you would expect just by chance, because sometimes certain genes in bacteria are mobile, you know, and we can talk about why that is the case or not, but if they're overrepresented in this kind of um, mobile gene family. I think there's something going on where this mobility matters for their biology. And now there's possibly an interesting second level that comes into play here, which, it, which why it doesn't make sense from the bacterial point of view. It might make sense from the genes point of view, though. And that's where it gets weird, because bacteria have this whole kind of second layer of evolution where they have their core genes, which kind of represent their like evolutionary identity in that sense. Though that those are the genes that they faithfully reproduce, or with a few mutations here and there when they divide and this kind of stuff. And that's usually the chromosome. The chromosome is not moving. It's not shared with anyone. It's what makes that cell that cell, <laughs> genetically mm -hmm. speaking. But then they have this other layer where there's genes coming in and out of them. And that's the mobile genetics of them. So the part of their gene pool that's not tied to a specific line or a family of bacteria or, a, or the specific clone even. But those genes can move in and out of cells. They can stay temporary 
temporarily with a so-called host. So these are literally genes that are being hosted temporarily by bacteria. Some of the genes, some of these mobile genes hang out with a certain type of bacteria for a long time. Sometimes they even get domesticated to the point where what? the host gets so many benefits from these genes that it's trying to move these genes into the chromosome. So no, 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 I want you to stay with me now right? and like wow. be there for every generation. So there's this whole spectrum where like some genes are even parasites. So they confer no benefits to the bacterial host. It's just a thing that kind of enters the cell, you know, whether the cell wants it or not, and kind of hangs out, uses its machinery, you know, for its own good, for its own replication, then maybe, you know, gets out of there in a few generations. So there's a whole spectrum. Some genes are super useful for the cell. Some genes are maybe useful today, but not tomorrow. So the cell is maybe like happily taking them in now because now I need you to do a thing. But tomorrow you're not useful anymore. You're just costly. So I'm going to chug you out. But then there's also evolution happening at the level of the gene, right? So as I said earlier, some genes are just selected for reproduction. It's not necessarily about ultimate goals or whatever. It's just if the genes, if the gene happens to be good at making copies of itself, and that's, that means a parasitic lifestyle, then that's great. doesn't matter. It doesn't care about the bacterial host. It's just a thing that it can use. These are all just genes, you know, blindly evolving. So there's this interesting relationship between these genes that can move around and the bacterial hosts that harbor them sometimes. And I think that's where these toxins live in that interesting space where these toxins can sometimes be super useful for the bacteria. Like, hey, I'm a gene, I move around, but I can also give you this ability to make deadly toxins. So maybe that's cool with you, you know, for a few days, weeks or whatever, like, oh, now you're living in this super competitive environment and now I can give you a ton of benefits. So now it's it's like temporarily this mutualistic relationship where the gene gets benefits because it gets replicated, it gets hosted by the cell and the cell benefits from them. But maybe sometimes this gene is a parasite. Maybe there's nothing to fight. Maybe everyone around you is resistant, so you don't need to make that toxin. These toxins are also really costly, like they slow you down. We also know that the benefits of making these toxins are really context dependent, which is just a fancy way of saying like, sometimes they're great, sometimes they're bad. (laughs) So it's not necessarily clear that the bacteria have a strong interest in keeping these toxins around for a long time, which is also probably why they're not in this kind of core piece of DNA called the chromosome. Mm -hmm. So in the species that I'm looking at, these toxins are never on the chromosome. And that's a pretty strong evolutionary signal in terms of if these toxins were always useful, they probably would be on the chromosome, but they're not. They're in this weird kind of extra, you know, chromosomal space where they probably move in and out of cells. They move between species, between strains, potentially. I want to figure out how that mobility changes how these bacteria use their toxins. If we can explain some of these genes by purely looking at the genes interests, because I think there's been a strong interest on when are these toxins useful for bacteria and when not, but we've kind of ignored that these genes might have their own evolutionary history and their own Mm. ecology almost, which is weird to think about because we're so used to thinking about species and organisms, right? But once you get to the nitty gritty of evolution at the level of the individual cell and a single gene, it can get really weird and interesting. Because yeah, as I said, they potentially exist on the spectrum where sometimes the genes are useful and they kind of cooperate with the bacteria that they're hosting them. But sometimes it's also, it's a very tense relationship, I think. (laughs) And that's really interesting. It's really interesting. So basically that's what I want to explore with this fellowship is, uh, okay, we have this toxin genes and we know roughly when they're good and when they're not good, you know, for the bacteria. Um, But now let's have them move between different types of bacteria and see what that Mm -hmm. does. Where do they end up? You know, if we give them a community of different types of bacteria, where's the toxin going to be? 
right? right? After a few hours or days, like where is it going? Where is it replicating? You know, where is it transferring to? And yeah. we're going to look at the bacterial side still too. But yeah, that's kind of something I want to explore. And I have, I've never really worked on horizontal gene transfer. So this is also a completely new topic for me, which is super exciting. It's also, it can also be frustrating because you're learning a new thing and it makes you feel dumb again. <laughs> it feels like you have to start from scratch, but that's part of being a scientist. Like, <laughs> if you want to move forward, you have to be, you have to be, you know, <laughs> crazy enough to go into a field where you know nothing. <laughs> I love this. So I actually, this, I really wanted to ask this because I listened to a recent interview of yours and you say that one of the biggest challenges as a PhD student is becoming used to life as researcher, just as you said, which sounds kind of like textbook. It's like, yeah. And then you expand on it and you're like, which means fail a lot, feel stupid. So I, I kind of really like that your definition of life as a researcher and what that means is it's not that you're a bad researcher if you fail a lot. It's this is what research is. Exactly. So how did you get to this realization? <laughs> so by failing a lot <laughs> repeatedly and having to come to terms with it. <laughs> right. No, it's just realizing that when someone hires you as a researcher, or as a scientist, they want you to do something that hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there'd be no point. Like we're not necessarily here to, I mean, there's value in replicating things, of course, but most of the time it's about pushing the boundaries of human knowledge, right? It sounds very grand, but that's essentially what we're doing, even though it might be super niche and very specialized, but someone gives you an idea and maybe a few techniques that you could use. And then you just, as a PhD student, for example, and then you just, probably going to try to do a thing that no one's ever done before. You're asking a question that no one's ever asked before. You're applying a technique to a new thing and that's never been done before, right? So chances are it's not going to work. <laughs> it's like usually people get things <laughs> right partially, right, when they set up a project, but that's no one, ex- no one in their right mind expects a thing to work on the first try. Like it's almost, it's almost irrational, you know, to right. expect something to work the first try because it wouldn't be cutting edge research if it was easy. And that's a hard task. Like you're trying to do something that no one's ever done before and people tend to forget about that, I think. So of course it's not gonna work. You have, you're gonna, you have to do a lot, lot of optimization probably, even if it's a technique that's been used for 10 years, it's probably not gonna work exactly the same way in this organism or in this lab or in this day or whatever. So you have to figure out the, the, the details of it. Sometimes you realize three experiments into the project that your question didn't even make sense because now you've learned more things and now you have to reframe your question because your question was based on something that's not true anymore, right? So everything, everything can change. Your question can change. Your approach can change. You try a technique and it didn't work, but then you meet someone at a conference and then over a beer, you you realize that they use a completely different technique for a similar question and a similar, in a different species. And now maybe you're thinking, Ooh, could I do this? And that's something that was never in your plan. So now you're going to try this new thing. So a lot of it is about about being open-minded and about realizing that failure is a core part of the process. I think the important bit is just to try and learn from each failure. And that can take Mm. some practice where you're trying to like reflect and not beat yourself up, but try to figure out, was there a mistake that happened or is it just unexpected, but not necessarily a mistake on your part? Like, oh, I tried to show that this is true. Now I showed that this is not true. Is that a failure? No, you've just learned something like that. You know, it wasn't your expectation, but that's not you're not trying to show anything. You're just trying to figure out what the truth is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that gets mixed up sometimes, especially with people who are less experienced. I have a feeling that they think their job is to show something is the case. But no, you're just your job is literally just to figure out what the truth is, right? So even if you figure out that something is not the case, that brings you closer to the truth. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But that can be a hard lesson because it probably took you three months, you know, or six months or a year you know, to figure out that something's not the case. Yeah. So that can be a hard pill to swallow. You, you also develop a lot of resilience over time. You just you literally your body gets used to the act of failing, which is what I said, I think, when I referred to learn what it means to be a scientist. It's also about desensitizing your brain to the experience of okay, I did a thing and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then I had to, I tweaked it a little bit. I did it again. It again didn't work. Okay. And so you just keep doing that. For one of my latest projects, I had to do a, an experiment like maybe 65 times or some crazy number. And every time I just, it's not that I didn't like the results. It just literally physically didn't work. Like I couldn't measure the thing that I wanted to measure. Right. So I just had to try again and again and again. It's just like an insane amount of persistence that you need. That's not, it's not necessarily always the case that it takes so long, but that's not unusual that you just have to be in, yeah, just insanely persistent. <laughs> and that's yeah. not something that I, that I necessarily had from day one at all, at all. It just built up over time. Like you do more projects, you get more used to it. And then your brain is like, okay, this is just at some point, you know, it's just this day-to-day life. Like, of course I failed today because that's my default expectation for my day now. <laughs> Whereas in my PhD, it was like, oh my God, something didn't work. I'm, a, I'm such a failure, you know? And then I used to cry in the lab. I actually did because I thought, oh no, I had this task and I didn't do it well enough because it didn't work. And now mm-hmm. I'm so much more experienced and older, you know, <laughs> more battle-worn. And I'm like, no, nah, it's fine. It's just, that's experimental biology for you. <laughs> it's just totally normal. And uh, if you're lucky, a thing works every once in a while, mm-hmm. you know, and if you, if you do your job really well. So your default expectation should be that something is not working. And as long as you keep learning from everything that didn't work, you're, you're building up this little staircase. So every failure is like a step on the way. And then at the end of that is a successful project, but it's built on a foundation of things that didn't work. Mm-hmm. It's hard though, because even when people publish their stuff, we tend to only publish the, the versions of the experiment that worked. So that can yeah. people, that can give people, especially junior people when they're just starting out, that can give them the illusion like, oh, people published a thing and it's six successful experiments. I didn't manage to do that in my first six months of my PhD, so I'm probably a failure. But what mm-hmm. they, the people that published that paper don't tell you is that behind each figure, there's a mountain of things that didn't work, you know, on their way to generating that figure or that plot. But unfortunately, with the current research culture, we don't necessarily talk about these things publicly. We talk about them in private, right? Like maybe our lab mates know that this took 60 attempts, you know, but you necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily put it in a paper, which is, I mean, that's just how it is. I guess you have to be concise in a paper. Maybe there's not enough space to talk about everything that didn't work, but I think maybe a little bit of that wouldn't be the most unhealthy thing to do. So at least I try to like be super open about it, you know, in my conversations with other people or in podcasts or on Twitter or whatever, just to make sure that young people understand. I say young people as if I'm like this old person, (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged at best. (laughs) No, but I've been in this, I've been in this game for a few years. So I've learned, learned a thing or two about failure being, Mm-hmm. again a cornerstone of, of progress but it takes time to yeah. realize that <laughs> yeah one of the things that we didn't end up getting to but just the life of research within Europe and what all of that means because so much like all the people I've talked to so far were so much kind of like within the U.S. culture from everything I hear is very different interesting I've never worked in the U.S. so I can't really speak on that a ton but that's interesting that you that you observed that already. Well, I think even, I don't know, again, I listened to the the podcast interview that you had, just the mobility. I mean, I'm not saying Mm. that it was easy to go from like Germany to Switzerland and then to the UK, like that, that, that's a a huge pain, but just in terms of like how mobility is viewed within the U S like, I think this idea of like, Oh, I'm going to go to undergrad here and then I'm going to do my master's and PhD here. And then I'm going to like, I think that's 
way less of a, even an option. Again, I'm not trying to minimize how difficult it must have been. No, no, no. I mean, part of it is also that, the, I mean, there's no comparison in terms of like the sheer distances, right, between That's places. True. I mean, the equivalent of moving between countries in Europe in terms of kilometers or miles is more the equivalent of moving between different states, right? Right. So, I mean, Europe is tiny compared to the world. So, yeah. I mean, there's still obviously, I mean, that's, but there's also true for states. There's a cultural shift, you know, you have to adjust. But to there's language shift too. The language shift, yeah, that is, that is the case. But then again, I mean, again, I don't want to minimize it. Of course, it wasn't like, you know, super duper easy, but English is the working language everywhere, you know, across Europe. So it didn't matter much whether I did science in Germany or in Switzerland or in, in the UK. The working language in the labs is exactly the same. It makes a difference in your non-work life, obviously, right? Because right. maybe... Maybe you now live in a country where you don't speak the local language, right? But again, for me, to me, it was easy because it was a move from Germany to Switzerland. And in Switzerland, a lot of people speak German. And then I moved to a predominantly English-speaking country. So now, of course, and my working language is, was English. So that's not a huge shock in terms of like, yeah, I can talk to pretty much anyone here. So that, that was an mm-hmm. easier move, you know, <laughs> compared right. to what other people did, where they moved to a place where they don't speak a word, you know, of the local language. And that's, of course, a, can be a pretty isolating experience, especially in the beginning. So I think I had some mobility, but it was also on easy mode kind of because it was not super far away it was not like across the Atlantic or anything like that so I was never super far away you know from friends and family I say I mean so within a few hours of flight right Right. and also the language barrier was never huge for me so there's definitely versions of what I did that are way more prohibitive both in terms of finances and language barrier and just sheer sheer distance and distance to your friends and family and stuff Um, so yeah also a lot of moves in a few years. Yeah, I mean, that is true. That's kind of is one of the things that come with academia sometimes, right? I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, I personally love it. It also doesn't really interfere with my lifestyle, let's say, because I'm not, you don't, I don't have kids, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily tied to anyone in that way. Um, I don't have dependents, so I'm very free in that sense. Like, I don't just take my cats with me and go to a different country. Like, I'm very, mm-hmm. I'm extremely privileged in that sense. And I am aware of that, that it's, it's very, it's been, I've been lucky enough so it's been very easy for me to move and I know that's a huge barrier for other people and that's what I that's the part that I hate about academic mobility that it's so enforced sometimes that it can incur some almost like some punishments basically at the career level if you just if you just have the the normal human need to stay where you're you know where your dependents are in your families and stuff and like academia is like oh that means you're not motivated enough right I think there's so many different ways of being a great academic some of it involves you know moving in you know living in three countries in three years and some of it not at all you know some people stay at the same place their whole life and they do amazing science so I don't I don't buy into that whole like oh if you're not moving around enough you know a lot that means that you're not following the great science or whatever I think that's just the narrative that people you know (laughs) yeah that's my that's my soapbox you know rant but I can see the benefits of mobility obviously it's nice if there's some mixing right because there's you want people to experience different environments you want people to see different types of research different styles of research different ways of running a university different ways of interacting with the public or whatever you know that's all good there's nothing per se wrong with being flexible and moving to different countries I just don't love when it's so pushed onto people like no matter if they like it or not and so I think there's a even within Europe, there can be a kind of obsession with like, oh, but has she been to these five countries? And it's interesting mm. that you mentioned the US early because until recently it was super, 
it was almost like a must to have worked in the US if you wanted to become a professor in Europe. Interesting. Because for a while, I don't know, I guess because it was the US was so strong in the 60s, 70s and 80s in terms of world leading research funding, you know, universities like crazy. And there was, yeah, if you wanted to do good science, you kind of had to move to the US for a bit. Or that was at least the perception, image, the right. perception. Exactly. That's changed a little bit in the sense that it's I think it's more equal now that like, there's more different you know, places in the world where you can do really, really cutting edge and leading, like world leading research. So it's almost like it's equalized a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you, but you can still feel it in some of the older generation when you talk to them, like, oh, it's interesting. Like she's been in all these countries, but she's never been to the US. And that, <laughs> that's something that you only hear from a certain generation. It's so weird. And if you look at their CVs, it's all like Germany, 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 US for three years, and then Germany, Germany. Oh my God. And then if you look at younger generations, it's not like that at all. You see all this, you know, beautiful diversity, like some people stay in the same place some people have lived in five different European countries some people are coming over from the US and then staying forever sometimes the other way around like back in the day there was one version of a good CV and that broken down that barrier thank god thank goodness yeah thank god my god but you can still you know see little remnants of it sometimes (laughs) like oh that sounds pretty old school what you just said (laughs) so but I mean obviously that's that's just how progress works in human societies you know Mm -hmm. things things stick around in people's minds because that's how they did things when they were younger and that that's true. I mean, I'm probably going to also be biased towards things that were true when I was young, you know, when I'm going to be 60. So <laughs> that's, that's totally normal. I'm not judging anyone for that. It's just an interesting dynamic, I think. Mm-hmm. Whatever people think of as a, a good career, it looks very different now compared to what it looked like maybe 40 years ago, which is good. Awesome. Elisa, thank you. This has been thank so you. much this fun. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. My <laughs> pleasure. I learned so much. You're welcome. This is so much fun. This chat with Elisa was so much fun. Her enthusiasm about how cool and amazing bacteria are is just contagious. And I spent quite some time after our chat just reading more about these topics. I hope you will too. It was really special for me to revisit the last part of our chat where we talked about the importance of failing. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. It's good for us to have a growth mindset, to challenge ourselves and to learn from each mistake, although it sure is hard to do. Elisa said it best, failure is a cornerstone of progress. You can follow Elisa Granado on Twitter, linked in the episode description, for more microbiology tidbits, but also more of her adorable two cats. Our music is Float and Fly by Gold Gartelli. This episode was edited by Noah Lloyd. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.